0: If you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Hello and welcome to Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle podcast. We've got a great guest lined up today and I'm, I'm going to preface this episode with a, a bit of a warning because it, it's likely to, to not be for the faint hearted because the reason I say that is we're going to be talking a lot about data science, machine learning and, and meta modelling with someone who is, a, I mean, they're an expert in the field, plenty of experience in the world of betting. It, it's Stephen Rothwell. Welcome to Serious About Betting, Stephen. Thanks, Ben, for having me. And how's things going? Are you all good?
1: Yeah, doing all good. Uh, It's comfy sitting here in Canada and uh, ready to chat.
0: Cool. Good stuff. And I said to you briefly before we started recording, and I will say it for the benefit of our listeners the the subject matter we're delving into today obviously takes a a fair amount of knowledge to to be able to speak about and, and talk to with any sort of um authority and that's not it's not my uh, my area of expertise but what we're doing here is I want to give someone like you a platform to to be able to share your experiences and, and what you know and and I think I'm going to be here to to ask questions that our, our listeners probably will have so is that all right with you?
1: sure we'll try to keep it digestible and uh easy to access let's do it
0: um well we we tend to start these shows with a a bit of an intro and it's kind of for my benefit and also the the listeners as well it's it's good to know a little bit more about your background and and your journey in betting and we'll, we'll take a deeper dive into the the machine learning stuff a little bit later on but can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I guess uh, in terms of um, betting, I'll talk a little bit kind of my educational background first. So, I, I had a kind of a diverse um, academic career um, many years back and kind of right out of high school, I, I went into an economics degree, uh, completed that and I kind of was more interested in the math side. So, um, yeah. I was doing pretty good on, on in the math and I found a mentor um, who was a mathematician and I ended up kind of transitioning from that degree into a second undergraduate and I got a job in Lethbridge doing quantum chemistry modeling of all things and uh, with NMR machines nuclear magnetic resonance and uh, that was a lot of fun and while I was doing that job I uh, completed another degree a dual degree in physics and math so I was kind of like a strange bird um, in terms of academics having kind of three undergrads under eight years Uh, but no advanced degree. So, you know, any hope of becoming a professor was totally shot. And uh, I decided after I kind of finished all of that work, um, learning um, all these kind of nice ways to model things in academic setting uh, to do a stint in industry. So uh, I went uh, when I was about 26 to work at a company called D-Wave Quantum Computing, and they were building the world's first um, usable quantum computer. It was in Vancouver. Just kind of asked for a job and and got it, and I worked there for a while, and and that's where I got introduced to statistical decision theory, which is my field. Um, After a a stint there, I went and got back to do my master's degree at UBC to learn a little more about the theoretical underpinning of uh, decision theory under uncertainty, and um, that's kind of my education. So I guess you can say um, my career uh, after all of that has been kind of a mix. Like I said, I had a pretty good gig working in quantum mechanics, which was a lot of fun. Um, But that first job that I got at D-Wave was, you know, really eye-opening. Kind of the sense there was I got introduced to a lot of kind of important statistical problems that you might not learn in academia. Like, uh, you know, you you tend to go over a broad range of theory when doing uh, your degrees. Uh, But there at D-Wave, right away, you get to see like the top five problems that fortune 500 companies are working on. So I, I got to work on things like KSAT, um, Metropolis, Hastings sampling, um, modeling quantum interactions, with calculus, all of these crazy problems. And I was totally way out of my league. Um, cause I had yet to do my master's degree and, uh, and I kind of struggled with that stuff at that job, but I kind of, you know, pushed through it. And after about a year, um, When I went back to do my degree, uh, I kind of went there with a perspective of like, you know, what the primary problems these Fortune 500 companies were talking to D-Wave about. So, like, for instance, Goldman Sachs talked to them a lot about, you know, how to sample things. It's very important um, for large data problems. So, you know, I I guess uh, in terms of... um, my career in education, I learned a lot about just how to make decisions when sampling is really hard, like how to sample uh, data when you have huge amounts of it. Um, after my master's degree, I got a job at Amazon, which was really eye-opening again. So, I keep having these experiences where I'm kind of thrown into the fire. And at Amazon, it was really crazy in 2010 uh, is when I worked there. And right away, I'm working on a data set with like a billion rows of data and a million features, a million columns, just like huge matrices of data. And so I worked at that gig for a year trying to, um, make statistical decisions on Amazon's book selling data, which was really interesting. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And from there I I went and I raised money for my first startup in gambling in 2010. Um, and what that was trying to do was to take all of this, um, uh, to all these techniques that I learned in machine learning and try to democratize them, apply them to uh, sports betting markets. Uh, but I wasn't a strong business guy in 2010. So I just kind of traded baseball for a long time while I was trying to figure out how to do that, how to build a stack for uh, bookmakers. Um, and that went okay. And uh, for you know five years, I was doing that and trading, but kind of where I went after that was a company called Fans Unite in 2017, um, where they were building blockchain solutions for, um, for sports betting companies. And I had been studying that pretty seriously for a while. And that was like a, a fun journey with them. And they went on to become a public company in 2020. And they're on their, well on their way to becoming a billion dollar company, I think. And uh, that's kind of my career in a nutshell.
0: So it sounds like sort of the the last decade really has been involved in betting. Was it when you were going through your studies, was there always betting in the in your sort of mindset and, and something that you wanted to work towards? Or like was there an interest there when you were younger? How did you end up in that industry?
1: Um, well, I played baseball in, in university, so I, I just like sports. I like playing sports a lot. Um, I was okay at it. And uh, I just kind of understood the space and... I I met a friend who uh was interested in sports betting and they kind of got me into that and I, I was looking at that as a space for you know solving very interesting problems it's a very uncertain space so it's great for statistical decision theory to be applied to so I thought it was uh, a very interesting um space to try to solve problems in and so you know just doing a lot of research and looking at what other people were doing uh, I thought it would just be really cool to see if there's a a way to kind of automate a lot of uh, a lot of the problems with machine learning and try to see if you could teach a robot to basically sports bet so i'd say my interest is purely academic i just wanted to see if uh there were neat problems to solve in the space
0: um with some people it's the they they come in as 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 fans almost and that's really sort of the drive to to get involved in betting and that it goes without saying leads to some eyes being opened into how difficult sports betting is but would I be would I be writing saying sort of where you were at with the the level of academia and what you were studying that when you actually started betting you were you were at a level that was, was operating quite high was it sort of high volume and, and stuff like that or did you still sort of have to find your feet and, and learn the hard way at the start
1: Oh, I'd say totally the opposite, actually. I'd say that um, I was riddled with academic biases, um, which is a pretty famous topic among sports bettors. Um, you know, they, often academics um, overrate their skill and don't understand the dynamics of markets and disrespect it. And I, I certainly did a lot when I first started out. So I, I'd say maybe my first experience in large-scale betting. Well, I mean, maybe betting $1,000 a game sort of thing when I raised some money. Um, It was an exercise in basically shedding academic biases. Um, I guess uh, when I first started out, I really knew how to code up a lot of these nice methods, um, different types of uh, decision, um, statistical decision making methods Uh, before there were any Python libraries or R libraries out there. So maybe around 2010, and when I was applying them on Betfair, I was just winning a lot. And, you know, I had no real money at the time, but I was pretty confident I knew what I was doing. And so I, I kind of thought like an, any academic might <laughs> that I was just really the greatest at betting, but totally not. And it just turned out at the time, um, like most people who win, that I was just doing something that not a lot of bettors were doing at the time. And that rapidly started drying up uh, starting at about 2012, kind of primarily after a Netflix challenge happened. And the publishing uh, of SK Learn, uh, a couple versions of SK Learn were in there. So that's a popular uh, Python programming uh, library that you can just use machine learning out of the box. You don't even have to understand any theory underlying it. And uh, when people started picking up on that and using that library, it was beginning to mature. Um, That edge that I was getting early just dried up really fast. And, you know, suddenly everyone could kind of do what I could do with no effort. And Betfair was ramping up the premium charge to like 60%. So like, it's really hard to make a lot of money on exchanges. And, um, that was kind of the case. And, you know, I guess before that 2012, 2013 period, when people were starting to use pattern matching techniques reliably, I think, uh, you know, in my first few months, um, of betting. When I started a company with my friend, Bernie Melanson, um, when we were starting to trade, I was making, I made for like 14K in my first month betting. That was my first experience betting. I just made money right away off $500 bets. And I sustained that winning for like a long time, like six or seven months. And of course, with that comes a lot of arrogance and ego. Um, I thought that I could do anything. I just had this, all figured out but no (laughs) and the biggest lesson i guess i learned in sports betting is that i I was just not special at all because in 2013 2014 the market immolated me i paid pinnacle a lot of money and i guess that's kind of the sacrifice that i had to make Um, as an academic jumping into betting you just have to kill your ego totally
0: it's interesting that you kind of I mean, you're describing their sort of overconfidence and, and what people struggle with, like the illusory of, of super superiority and, and stuff like that, which we you're kind of then getting into psychological elements outside of the, the statistical side that obviously your your educational background was in. So once you learned those lessons and you realised that you were kind of thinking perhaps you were you were you were better than you actually were, d- do, is that something that you then became interested in as well in terms of cognitive biases and the impact that they can have?
1: Uh, generally, n- not as a mathematician. You, you, you're you more concerned with just making good predictions and making sure that your predictions are, have a good coverage. Um, that is, they cover the true probability distribution, whatever market you're trying to model. Um, I guess the problem that I had was that I just didn't understand that edges die and that machine learning was not this uh, bulwark of um, of uh, you know of edge creation. I guess is what I would call it. Like I just can't create edges forever with this. Um, there's a lot of smart people out there who can pick up machine learning now because of these libraries I was talking about that have come out. Like you have R, you have Sklearn, and now you have TensorFlow. And so anyone can just engineer now. You don't have to know any theory underlying. You don't you know you don't have to know the bounds of Uh, how some loss function works. Um, (laughs) You could just now just engineer solutions and get 95% of where somebody who's trained for eight or 10 years in machine learning can get with no effort. And that's kind of what I encountered. So I'm not really thinking about the cognitive bias. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, why I lost my edge and what I can do to get that back um, kind of using mathematics, if that makes any sense.
0: Definitely. When you talk about the the loss of the edge and the the fees, uh, I think it's Betfair you said sort of drove you away and you lost money to to bookmakers like Pinnacle, was that really what then pushed you to the the other side of the industry and somewhere like Fans Unite or was, was there other reasons behind that as well?
1: Um, well, I was just interested in sort of this holistic problem of building an automated bookmaker. Um, really, that's why I started my first company, Steam Sharp. And so we raised like a million bucks to do that and i just wanted to figure out how to um simulate these markets and you know i I was really fascinated with how they emerged so that's what pushed me to build software for the industry for sure it was purely academic in nature and not because i was losing money losing money and winning money is just a test to see if you are building good software i think Um, so i've always was just betting because of this concept of skin in the game and I do believe in that, that, you know, the people who um, are pretty well-versed in financial markets always talk about that, um, this concept of, you know, if you're not really betting, are you learning anything? So it's just a good barometer for building good software and building good software is what I'm really concerned about um, in terms of betting. The money that comes from betting into markets is just the after effect of doing that well.
0: And you you mentioned about how advanced the the industry has become and how quickly people mm-hmm. seem to be able to learn and i know that data science machine learning models algorithms you you, you can't escape this kind of language now in sports betting and everyone seems to or, or claims to be an expert and, and kind of throw fleeting statements around but for someone that's actually dedicated a lot of their life to to that field, how, how does it sit with you when you kind of hear the the talk of it and almost as if it's sort of a throwaway comment when really there's a lot more to it than that? What's what's your sort of perception or, or feeling towards that?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's pretty prominent. So it, it's best to describe it in terms of um, the concept of pattern matching. So if you have data, you're, you're matching patterns in that data and trying to make good inferences from that data um, That's sort of... Um, match up to the true probability distribution of some market, some some event that you're trying to predict. And the the reality of markets is that anyone now can pick up this general software, throw data into it, um, and maybe with maybe a month of training not really understanding anything, you can literally just engineer a solution that gets you 95% of the way to um, a professional sports better like any professional you've had on it there's really no value in um, modeling anymore it's it's more in the generation of the data that you put into the models where the real value is if you're really clever about finding angles and different ways to um, combine data um, you'll pro- you could probably still generate a good edge but in terms of you know having any value um, in machine learning the idea of building a edge that can beat the market with pattern matching Um, that is machine learning, uh, frequentist methods, it's pretty much dead. And it's been dead for a long time because these methodologies are so ubiquitous and easy to deploy now. Like I used to have to code up, you know, a few thousand lines of code to do, uh, you know, support vector machine back in the day, um, which is a popular algorithm in machine learning. But now you can run it in three lines of code and you don't have to care. It's all taken care of under the hood for you because of this great democratization of um, these procedures that are used in calculating risk.
0: If we think about your your current approach and, and what you're doing, what's how would you sort of summarize that or speak to that a little bit about the way you bet now?
1: Right, so I, what I do is I try to identify um, two types of bias. So um, statistical bias is an important concept, I think, if you want to win with machine learning. Um, and it's because you know a lot of people out there are trying uh, different models and they're trying to find optimality with different techniques. Um, so it, it's probably good to talk a little bit about statistical bias to kind of set up um, you know, h- how you might use machine learning in 2021 um, effectively. So this idea of bias is, you know, you're trying to uh, find the difference between a parameter to be estimated and the expectation uh, of that parameter. So in terms of sports betting, the parameter we care about is, you know, this value we call theta, which is just like an index of some probability models, a family of probability models, which might approximately govern the outcome of some market. Okay, it's a bit of a mouthful, but the way you can kind of conceptualize that is you can imagine there's some true model, say baseball money line, which is one of my favorite markets. Um, There's some true model out there. You don't know it. You never will, but you can try to approximate it probably with something a lot more simple than what is actually true you know reality is pretty complex so any model is you know always just some function of the data some data that you collect and then you put into it and the probability of distribution that you're trying to fit with that data and you build something called this loss function and that's kind of all embedded in these these uh programming libraries I've been talking about, Sklearn, are, R, you know, you don't have to worry about any of that. If you just implement the algorithm, it's already kind of in the box there. But the idea now is that, you know, there's many different types of procedures um, that you can use, many ty- types of models. You know, you, m- you might even be Bayesian. And you might be trying um, to build priors and posterior distributions. There's many different ways to uh, generate a probability. And kind of the thing here is that the line is built up of this family of estimators. Um, Some are simple, some are complex, some are really overfit and bad, some are really sharp. And uh, lots of them are degenerate in terms of commonly used like linear regression or in soccer, like a Poisson distribution for calculating expected goals is used by everyone and their grandmother. So there's this concept here that, you know, Some models will have a higher weight of volume in some markets than others. So, if you really want to use machine learning properly, you want to detect um, bias in either um, the data that you want to model on or or the procedures that you think are commonly used out there. Um, And if you can find a procedure which isn't commonly used properly, or you can find uncommon data that not a lot of people input into their models, um you can still find edges uh now and again um uh, just because of the bias um of how you know these procedures are used and bet bet into um bet, you know you're bet into the market um maybe with earlys you're uh using very efficient models and you shape the line right away but uh I guess the idea here is that you know you don't know the true model you want to detect if your model is a little bit better than the average model which is kind of reflected in pinnacle's closing line it's like this mishmash of optimality um
0: i was just going to ask just just i'm i'm interested to know because you mentioned there about like the the baseball money line is your your favorite market to bet on now is that just coincidence that it's it what it's what you played in your youth is it is it where these these biases are, are most prominent is 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 it because you put your most time into research in that what's what's the reason for the the link between the two
1: well definitely a combination of what you said so i uh, just because I know the game very well, I, I played it a lot. I cannot really understand how the, uh, how a prior might be made, for instance, how you might fit a prior. Like, I just kind of know what happens in baseball. So with that subjective knowledge, you can, you know, come pretty close to what you think uh, distribution might be on a, on a certain problem you're trying to solve in the space. So this is that subjective knowledge. And then there's um, the objective side of it where, you know, there's just a lot more data in baseball than any other sport by far. Um, it is the, the go-to sport for machine learning because you just have far more granular uh, breakdowns of uh, on-field data, and it also isn't uh, on courts. So it's basically the system where you don't have you know all these moving parts like people not running on the pitch in soccer and and in basketball maybe running around the court. It's a lot easier to um, extract features out of that and. Um, compete against other people because there's not too much hidden about that. So, if you're really good at machine learning, you tune your models correctly, you make sure that your results cover, have good coverage, and they're well calibrated. Um, you can pretty much compete against the whole mishmash of people who are kind of um, betting into the line and shaping it. Um, you can do a, a little bit better if you really know what you're doing.
0: Just for my benefit, I guess, when we, when we say machine learning, are we talking about it's something that's simply just more efficient or it, it can handle more data than, than sort of an individual can by themselves? Is it you can do more than, than basic sort of statistical analysis? What, what is sort of the main benefit or, or why do people turn to machine learning?
1: Um, Machine learning is is pretty good at taking in uh, large amounts of data and then sort of uh, filtering it down um, to what matters and then uh, building good inferences um, just by uh, basically sampling your data a lot. You can sample your data, you can cut it up, um, you can build a lot of different models and then aggregate together a a pretty good idea of where you, you think a market should be. So that's something we call coverage. So we want to uh, basically, uh, like I was saying, you have a true model out there. You really don't know what that is. And when you have a model, um, machine learning, and you put in data, you're trying to basically cover that that true model or get an idea that um, when you're saying that you have a sort of a probability that pops out of your, your model, that that probability is actually reflective of probably what the the actual true line should be and that you also measure the amount of noise and you kind of get that fraction of balance right uh, between signal and noise. So machine learning is a very good way to automate doing that. And it's tough to kind of do that if you're not using uh, statistical methods. That is, you're not taking a lot of data and, you know, trying to train up your, um, your weights and your models. So machine learning is just very uh, effective at automating that system for you. And giving you a good estimation of if you're actually calibrated
0: just to kind of paint a clearer picture is it i mean people are probably sat there picturing someone in a in a room with with thousands of sort of computers around them and whatnot so what is life like as, as a better whose primary strategy or a way of betting is through machine learning
1: it's pretty easy uh <laughs> you you sort of uh you build your systems um you build a stack of models they're they're always running concurrently and you're not really worrying too much um that's kind of the neat thing about machine learning it's a frequentist approach so it's uh unconditional on the data that you throw into it so whatever market you want to analyze you can just take your data um, and if you have good processes for um, reducing the data like kind of getting rid of the data that doesn't matter and sticking to the stuff that has a lot of signal um, you can either find good inferences, or you can pretty much determine if a model is so efficient that you don't want to bet into it. And after a certain amount of time um, developing uh, these procedures, making sure you don't overfit, making sure that you have good coverage, um, it's just all automatic after that. And you can spend more of your time trying to find angles and new data. Um, that's that's really, the I guess, the secret sauce of uh, using machine learning is you're always just trying to find... Uh, new types of data that nobody else is using, um, or you're trying to detect hidden data that you haven't factored into your model, so you might be missing fundamentals, you really want to be spending more time doing that, uh, trying to develop new angles rather than, you know, constantly punching out probabilities with like hand cobbled models. You don't want to do that. So that's kind of the uh, benefit of this frequentist approach to, um, making probabilities you can just kind of throw your data in and not worry about it too much you don't have spurious data in there so it is a bit of work on that side
0: i mean data you've said there is is the the secret source and i'm sure it, it gets quite granular when you're talking about the the data that you're using and finding those those edges and and stuff like that but data can for for a lot of people it, it often comes at a cost i mean there's a lot of companies out there recording incredible amounts of of data points and and really high quality data but for someone that that is starting out is 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 the only way to to pay for that data if you need to find that edge or is there sort of lower level or or more freely accessible data that can be used
1: yeah that's where you have to be careful because you you can build a model um, with machine learning. And you put a bunch of data into it, you have a result, but it can be totally useless if you don't have data that sharp people are using. Um, and that's just the case. So you you probably want to start out with sports that have a high degree of commonly available data. Um, if you're going to use uh, this type of statistics to make predictions, try to find edges. That's baseball and NBA for sure. Um, and then probably soccer after that and then everything else it's really difficult to get data so you're going to run into the problem when you create models in general that um, you know you're building these probabilities and then you look at the closing line and then it's way off right and you're like what what am i doing wrong you should be really suspicious when you're more than 15 cents off the market like really suspicious that you have it dead wrong in fact you probably do almost every time and that's because there's uh, this problem of hidden variables, missing data. So people who know, you know, when the pitcher's thumb hurts, or when a guy hurt his leg and is, and is not going to play a lot of minutes in a basketball game, and there, there's all this knowledge that you just can't get and you can't factor into your model. And if you blindly bet into that, you're going to pay a hit, like a hideous price um, in terms of your bankroll. You will lose hand over fist. Um, And you got to be really careful there uh, to only use machine learning when you have, you know, a a lot of data, or at least you're converging to as much data as maybe a a sharp syndicate might have. Uh, That's why I personally stick to baseball and NBA because there's just not a lot out there that, um, you know, sharp syndicates can get that I can't in those sports. Uh, That is, I've developed my, my data gathering in those two sports quite a lot. So before you even apply, any statistical decision theory um, to your betting process, you should probably just focus on collecting as much data as you possibly can um, and, and really, really trying to make sure you cover that entire data set uh, for the sport that you choose. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, if you're missing a lot of features that other people have, you might be missing uh, an optimal combination where you can create a good probability distribution on your, on your data set. And if you don't create a good probability distribution that kind of matches the truth, you're in trouble. So yeah, spend a lot of time getting good data.
0: We're getting into the realms of sort of asymmetric information, there aren't we, where you don't know what other people know or whatever it might be. And I'm sure a lot of people are aware of how dangerous that can be. But then, if you're in a in a real life example, you're you're betting, and and that's something that that could potentially come to light. How long do you give it before? You acknowledge that so you're within your i mean we can use the the 15 cents of the, of the line as sort of an example to work from but if you're within that um bracket when you're you think you might have an edge how long do you leave it before you find out that oh actually i don't this this is a large enough sample or, or whatever it might be
1: we have a rolling like a rolling multi-thousand game simulation That's con- it's always on it's always concurrent so we always know you know, because games come in, games come out, and it's just kind of rolling along. And I pretty much know that um, if I have the same data as the common market, and there isn't any hidden hidden factors kind of factored into the price, uh, I pretty much know I'm going to win at a certain clip, just because I measure it, right? You just measure it. Um, so I, I just leave it until I notice that um, over a multi-thousand game sample. Um, so I, I predict every single game, right? And if I notice that my holistic edge—I guess I'd call it—is going down, or is, then I'm I'm really worried. Then I'm like, okay, you know, I better uh, revisit my data and see what I'm missing. But uh, that hasn't happened in a while. Um, I'm definitely more worried when I'm off. So there's a proportion of bets, maybe like one in seven, where. Like I'm way off, like thirty or forty cents, and that scares me when that happens. And I stop there, and and I say, you know, should I bet the other side of that? What's really going on? Um, you know, that, that's another uh, another subdomain of problems where you can actually manufacture a <laughs> quite a nice edge. As long as you have a good model with common data and a lot of common data that's commonly available, uh, and you do a really good job tuning that up, um, you should do. You should do okay in 2021 still um on games where you're fairly close um you should measure that too you know so you should you should cut up your betting information into like uh tuples of uh edge like the implied edge that your model gives and then also uh, the odds that you bet at and then you should see like which little um it's like building a histogram three-dimensional histogram almost you're just trying to figure out which subdomains of possible bets that machine learning is like really performing on. So the particular procedure that you might've found uh, beats the closing line. How good is it performing on over a lot of bets? And if it's still performing, you know, you don't change, but if you're going from like a, a long-term 2.3, 2.4% ROI, and it goes down to like 1.7% over say a hundred games bet, 200 games bet um, that's when you need to worry because you know, you might be missing something. Good example of that is when uh, StatCast came out and they had barrels and all that stuff, like launch angle, and everyone started using that. Um, some people picked up really quickly that uh, players were just trying to hit home runs because they could make more salary if they hit more home runs. <laughs> and that that was actually something that happened. The K rate went way up in baseball and home runs went way up. Um, and when you notice that stuff and you're not factoring in that new type of approach I guess to playing the game and and you just ignore it you you will lose a lot of money probably but you know we can kind of detect when
0: when that's changing when people are betting differently and then you just kind of adjust to that are you working with known data points out there or do you also spend time and I mean the, the example that springs to my mind is something like expected goals or, or strokes gained in in soccer and golf these these metrics that they come to prominence but they're kind of formed from other data points so expected goals taking in sort of shot location angle part of the body or whatever so all these data points that are available but then sort of combining them together um are you are you looking to do that as well
1: We look to take everything we can possibly find. Like So we have thousands and thousands of data points in baseball, but we reduce it to the ones that matter. So there's these um, feature engineering processes. You can can go and read about it. You can figure it out. I don't want to talk too much about that, but um, you can kind of reduce this huge mishmash of data points, like maybe even many thousands, depending on the sport you're looking at, and then just find out the ones that... Uh, when combined together, correlate to a lot of signal and kind of reduce noise a lot in your uh, in your output, your probabilities that you produce, whatever procedure you're using. So our goal is to collect everything we possibly can in any sport we try to model and use computer science to kind of break that down into uh, combinations that matter. It's a bit of a problem because, you know, search space exponentiates as you add every columns into your system, I guess. More columns is just another data point in a big list of data, big matrix, big matrix of data. And you're just trying to kind of find out which ones really matter. And there's ways to do that. So my answer is always collect as much data as you possibly can. And the way that you gain advantage with machine learning is to like learn about feature engineering so that you can, um, instead of being a person who randomly picks out data that they think that matters, maybe subjective, you're subjectively just trying to say, you know, in baseball, I think hits matter in home runs. And I'm going to combine that together and make a model. Well, you're probably not going to do very well with that. You, know, you want to do this statistically and algorithmically. So uh, anyone who's into um, kind of building machine learning models, I really, really, really advise them to look at feature engineering. It's probably the most important piece of produ- producing an edge in, in all of uh, de- uh, frequentist decision theory, in my opinion.
0: We spoke, sorry, both briefly um b- before we started recording and exchanged a couple of emails and and you mentioned this idea of, of meta modeling and to me is that you're, you're saying these are you taking machine learning models and almost sort of compiling them and and piecing them together to almost build a an even bigger and better model what's how does that work
1: that's right that's right um there's actually a guy you had on uh Eli- elihu or i think elihu i um pardon me if i got his name wrong but he, he had a a really nice way of explaining that, you know, you just try everything and you build, you know, tons and tons of models. And maybe you slice up your data in many way, many ways, and you kind of have this shelf of uh, basically pattern recognition techniques um, that produce probabilities. And on your shelf, uh, you have all of these nice ways to, um, you know, predict something, but none of those create an edge because, well, everyone does it. The models are de- degenerate, so you're not going to take a simple model and create an edge. But you might take combinations of models together and actually produce an edge from that, so there actually I have a couple of examples written down two types of meta modeling so maybe uh through example, we can explain this um, as a good way to introduce meta modeling to people so uh, just by definition, meta modeling is just a fancy way of you know saying you know you want to learn things from things you've already learned <laughs> maybe statistic statistically maybe not so you can imagine you might try out a bunch of machine learning models just like that previous guest I mentioned uh, actually does. And you might find out that a few went out over the others over a long period of betting. And it might be the case that, that you could take like a, two models together, and one model does good in one subdomain of the data. But by subdomain, I mean like you know maybe uh, favorites in between odds 1.5 and 1.8, where you have 5 to 10 cents of edge. That's like a a subdomain, like a a cut of the data or um, a cut of the conditions that you bet at. So, you might take that and find that an algorithm like XGBoost does really good in that um, area. It's a particular type of machine learning model um, that is pretty good at reducing bias. So, you're doing very good in that area, but it does very poorly in another area. Say... um, bets where you're like 30% off. You're you're missing fundamental in, fundamental information. Uh, that model is just going to get creamed if you blindly bet with it. But you might have another type of model that deals with variance really well, like a random forest. Okay, and you can combine those two models together and sort of weight them in a clever way. Maybe it's weight by some function. Uh, I don't want to get too much into that, but. Um, you can kind of combine them and then the combined output together creates a better probability than each alone. And that's the essence of metal modeling. And we call that blending in machine learning. You're blending models together in particular that you're blending stacks of models together um, where you, you might build like 32 XG boosts and like 32 random forest models. And then you kind of mash them all together and just kind of test to see if there's some output that is just a little bit better and it really depends on like kind of how you do that. But that's the idea of meta-modeling where you're just, you know, taking these little simple um, simple pattern matching probability producing machines and um, just seeing if, you know, um, you can kind of guess these weights that produce just a better result. Um, so, you know, not a lot of people really do that very much. You know, I think a lot of people who try to model with these nice libraries in Python and R, they just like produce a model and uh, they're just very happy with their output and they're not really checking if there's better ways to sort of combine different types of uh, different types of modeling together you know uh, for instance you know you might find correlations that bookmakers haven't found out yet doing that and that's where you can generate a pretty good edge Um, particularly that's where I generate an edge is you know kind of cutting up and using different models on different areas of betting for dogs I'll bet uh, I'll use something that I wouldn't uh, used for favorites, for example. So, that's metamodeling. Uh, another great example, and um, something we studied a lot at Fans Unite, was kind of the concept of simulating how a pinnacle market emerges. So, that's another type of, uh, of modeling problem you might want to study if you want to build an edge. So, for instance, you might want to spin up like 5,000 models, and they are combinations of like different procedures, basically. So, you might have this whole mash of linear regressions, logistic regressions, um, kernel machines, all these types of models, okay? And they're all of different degrees of complexity. And you might kind of spin all those up. And you might just say, you know, I'm gonna optimize each one of them, and then I'm gonna produce probabilities from each one of them. And then I wanna see um, exactly how um, that market might emerge, considering that the market um, like Pinnacle's closing line is built from uh, these people betting into the market with these models. Pinnacle doesn't know what that model might be, but you, know, you have sort of the result of that model and sort of maybe the scale of the bet, depending on how confident the better is. So, you know, can you actually simulate that by um, giving each machine learning model like some money and then saying, you know, let's optimize it randomly, feed it just random data, because you you might suspect that an average person just building a model is just using some random data um, that they choose, whether it be by sophisticated technique or not. And you just kind of want to see if you can guess the closing line. That's like a really nice meta modeling problem that you can use from like this whole collection of machine learning methods that you built to kind of guess what a a game might be like. So isn't isn't that interesting? And we found out that, we found out this kind of uh, amazing truth that the average optimized machine learning model Actually converges to Pinnacle's closing line, <laughs> which is not a big surprise, is it? Because Pinnacle is basically taking all the sharp data and, and all the all the bad data and weighting it, and then we just find out that you know if you just take an average machine learning model, it just really converges to 2.8 percent margin. Um, and if you can find that subset of models within that that um, is in the right tail of that distribution, you could actually generate an edge from that and that that's kind of what we figured out at fancy night uh, i think there's something online about that we graphed that up and coded it up and uh, presented those results um so yeah there's another meta
0: meta modeling problem that you could build from your individual little models so one of the points also from from elihu that, that he brought up when we did the podcast with him was around sort of this the life cycle of a model now obviously it's going to be different depending on sort of what you're betting on and how frequently you bet and whatnot. But typically for you, how long do you see your valuable models lasting in the, in the current betting market?
1: Um, Currently the ones right now that are, so the one I just explained where you're, where you're trying to estimate where the closing line would go. uh, I think that's really hard to duplicate Um, and that's going to last for a little while more. I also think that blending together models as I just described is is going to last for a few years more but everything's going to eventually die out because I think he's right about that and any any simple model like trying to do a linear regression in some market somewhere maybe like golf or like a you know NFL or something like that uh, there's no chance that that model has any edge now it's it's totally gone I know that because I measure it um I have Several thousand concurrent models. It's always updating over time on my on my servers, and I just know that none of them win anymore. And you can just test that, just spin it up, and and see if Pinnacle's closing line creams your your long-term uh, backtesting, right? And I would say that there's like no no value in in simple model model building now. It's just all dead. The only way you can uh, make money is to have inside information. Um, hidden those hidden variables I was talking about, knowing if people are injured. So you really need to put a lot of effort if you want to be plus EV advantage player into getting uncommon data that not a lot of people have, and then exploiting that. And I think that's really hard to get. Not a lot of groups can get that. So uh, I'm even more negative than the previous guests because I, I think that there's just almost no way to develop an edge now unless you're doing meta modeling and. Kind of picking apart where you can these rare instances maybe one in 10 bets in mlb i can find bias in pinnacles line uh, th- that's ex- actually how efficient pinnacles closing line is it's like nine out of ten bets is like no way man <laughs> and that's kind of where the market's at right now it's just this constant decreasing return and in investment and scarcity of of edges um, angles are being uh, constantly found out and reduced and there's just not much left out there um, unless you kind of go into these, I guess, markets, which are just not as liquid, like, you know, uh, option or, um, player props and stuff like that, or maybe you bet into early lines and stuff, but you know, is it even worth it if you can only get down $500 before people pick up on your, on your edge? I don't know. But, you know, if you want to talk about large liquid markets where you can get down lots of money, you know, it's really, really hard. And I think maybe in five or 10 years, it's going to be, going to be pretty tough for anyone to even compete.
0: You talk about that, it's, it feels like it's it's a fairly new development that this idea of um I don't know whether to say traditional or, or old school handicapping, you know, like eye test type stuff and that's long gone, gone or the the edge has been eroded yeah. from that. And you're now saying that you think we're already at that stage where I mean you mentioned sort of Poisson distribution, stuff like that. You think now that's that's kind of dead and buried already?
1: totally yeah um i just know that because i always am looking at that and seeing if these simple pattern recognition techniques can beat the closing line the answer is no pinnacle is very efficient high volume low margin model is supremely dominant and it uh, just totally annihilates um uh you know if you think of you know Um, The percentage of models which are in kind of the right tail, those that might beat the closing line, it's getting ever shorter every year. Um, It's just so efficient because uh, if you have an edge, it it gets bet into right away, right? Like really fast, right? And then good players are uh, limited very quickly. They're either banned or limited if they're betting large scale money into books that aren't pinnacle, you know, you know, it's a very rare book that will take a lot of money and allow you to uh, get down. But, you know, this constant need to repeat betting and, and basically show your hand, you're betting $500 at a time into the opener. If you bet that five, six, seven times, um, your signal is found out very, very quickly. And it's just a function of the bookmakers making it really hard to sustain your edge. There's no privacy. Your order book is open to them. They can see what you're doing. Um, and it's not very hard to reverse engineer something. I think bookmakers have been burned a lot in like the 2010, 2011 era, maybe on like first and second halves in basketball, for example, a very famous better made money on that. But, you know, bookmakers don't want to be caught with their pants down in that situation. So I think there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, detecting, you know, on the industry side, detecting edges, detecting when people are um, betting on mass and sort of limiting them and stopping them from, um, Getting down when they have that edge, you you want to find that out really fast and cancel it.
0: For someone like yourself, there's there's only going to be a, a finite number of outs or ways to to get your action down because I have no doubt that when it comes to sort of banning or, or limitations, you you've probably experienced that yourself. When it comes to to actual hmm. bookmakers. Do you have any sort of interest in the the side of the industry that that could be considered more sort of entertainment based? Do you have any involvement with that side of things? Or are you purely um, sort of looking at at high volume um, sports and and real low margin odds and things like that?
1: Definitely just interested in high liquidity markets. You know, I want to to get down a lot of money um, all at once on mature markets. and, And that's what I'm really focused on. Because, you know, I'm not going to make a lot of money if I don't do that and I can just go on code and make money. So if I want to treat this as a way to generate cash, um, I'm interested in those markets. And I think that's where the chief challenge lies in in, uh, in playing this game, I guess, is to try to um, figure out how to get down money and... Do that in a way that isn't like painful, you know. I hear a lot of pain from people having to get accounts and all that stuff. I mean, I do that too, right? I, I have a fair deal of accounts um, so that I can kind of obfuscate my edge and try to hide it from people. But generally, I, I just really want to um, bet into mature markets that are pretty efficient and try to pick out those those opportunities which might have some uh, bias injected into it. It's not often, but. Um, I just think it's easier to do that because I don't want to go through the whole mess of opening accounts and, you know, getting banned and all that stuff. Happened a little bit to me, uh, the limiting and the banning. But generally, I I try to uh, stick to my main markets like MLB and NBA, which are, you know, you can still get a a fair deal down. Um, Like I'm not betting a million dollars a game or anything like that. So uh, for me, it's not a big problem, not as big a problem as other people. But I'm very much more concerned with obfuscating my edge and making sure that nobody can detect me. I want to be like a ghost in the system. Say I have a $10,000 bet, I spread that over a lot of accounts to make sure that you know, nobody can reverse engineer that. I'm very paranoid about that aspect, uh, being reverse engineered.
0: Let's, let's look ahead a bit to the, the future and perhaps some of the things. I know you have some, some ideas about whether the industry could and, and perhaps should um, end up. And correct me if I'm wrong, again, we chat a little bit, but I, I believe you're interested in sort of the, the crypto space and, and block technology. And I mean, at the time of recording, Bitcoin specifically is, is getting a lot of press and, and obviously on its way to, to being adopted by the mainstream. So so what role do you think blockchain and, and stuff like that will play in the, the future of the betting industry?
1: Huge role. I think it's the future. Um, in fact, i, I would bet a lot of money on that, that uh, in probably the next five years, you'll probably see a decentralized, um, totally decentralized exchange where people can avoid things like limiting and banning. Um, It's just a function of the way bookmakers work, and blockchain has only one purpose. I mean, blockchain is just a really inefficient, expensive database (laughs) that's distributed across many servers. and. Uh, It's a ledger that can, you know, account for transactions. And the idea here is that, you know, you want to decentralize something. And probably the chief problem in the sports betting industry is that, uh, you know, bookmakers, you know, I know bookmakers got to do what they got to do, but centralizing sharp data is a huge problem uh, for two reasons. Creates um, this kind of no volatility situation. You know, if one or two companies get all the sharp data and then they aggregate that data... And then it's kind of sold in back channels, and everyone just or everyone just copies, you know, the line of a of a good bookmaker. Uh, that means there's no volatility. So who wants to trade in a market where there's no volatility? Not a lot of options to make money. So there's that pressure, and there's also the pressure of companies who are just kind of really greedy. They only want, um, you know, I think Pinnacle's a, a rare exception to that, where winners are mostly welcome. Uh, but you have bookmakers who are like, for instance, William Hill, who if you even win a couple thousand dollars, you're you're kind of shut down and you have like a four, $40 limit. <laughs> That's happened to me. And I didn't even win that much money. I can't even imagine what like huge movers go through. So uh, you have these pressures in the industry on throwing out the sharp gambler. And if there's no way to make money gamblers see that then why why would they even gamble aside from entertainment purposes so i think there's you know this pressure between this um uh, dichotomy of betters you got the the people who are just um recreation betters and they just bet for fun and they're always better at a sports book like uh william hill but on the other side of it you have this betting community who wants to compete and wants to get down or would like to you know try to bet into those markets and you know build up a bankroll and then get down and that market needs to be served and there's nobody currently serving them. Uh, Blockchain is a perfect avenue for these people to kind of build their own private networks and decentralize sharp data. So you start taking sharp data away from uh, the bookmakers and you embed it um, in like a blockchain token or something like that. And that creates a a lot better situation because you can just do kind of this P2P matching. Um, You have these smart contracts with like perfect integrity, you know, no one can stiff, no one can get banned, there's no limiting. And there's all these kind of meritorious aspects of building a bookmaker for real on the blockchain. So just to be clear, like Nitrogen Sports, for instance, is not a uh, decentralized sports betting blockchain. They just take Bitcoin as currency. But if you wanted to build something real like Augur 2.0, which is a, a nice effort to do this. Uh, you can, you know, feasibly get down if you build the the economics around the blockchain. Uh, you can feasibly create a situation where large movers can get down again and you can build these private networks that are just completely separated from the traditional bookmakers and operate the way that you want to there. So that's why I think blockchain is, is coming uh, soon. It just hasn't reached a state of maturity yet where it's easily deployable, where people can... Um, you know, easily kind of buy this independent token bet and then cash out in USD, which is kind of what everyone wants. Um, But things are changing, you know, Um, especially with things like uh, Tether and stable coins, there's ways to kind of build these private networks. And I I privately build my own. So I I have my own little blockchain network that I test with, you know, a a number of friends and we bet there. And it's just basically cross booking each other uh, privately, independently, And you can obfuscate your bets by, um, you know, there's certain ways you can do that. You can make sure that your edge is totally protected on the blockchain as well. So it's very good for originators. Um, I think it's coming and it's just a matter of time um, before that happens. Or it might be the case that bookmakers kind of figure out a way to reset the equilibrium between large-scale movers, originators, and recreationals. Just kind of, you know, be a little bit more fair to them and share in the, you know, it doesn't have to be 100% bookmaker controls the information, (laughs) Um, which is the way it is now. And with the limiting and banning on top of that, it just makes an untenable industry. I think everyone knows it's getting worse. And all you have to do is go on Twitter. I personally don't go on social media, but sometimes I surf Twitter independently and just watch what people say. And they're all complaining about how untenable the industry is. So will anything change? Probably not. So Somebody, somebody is going to eventually build these private dark pool networks, and maybe it'll be me, maybe it'll be somebody else. But um, I certainly got a taste for it at Fans Unite because that's what we were doing—was building our own protocol.
0: Peer-to-peer setup that, that you talk about—is that? Do you imagine it being a kind of a, a true exchange setup where it's like there's there's a back and a lay option, or is the setup with your your friends that you've got on your own private network? Is it a uh, a setup where potentially i think x will happen i think y will happen and if neither of those two happens there's no sort of transaction how how would it work
1: yeah i think it i think it's hard to build an exchange um it's just the blockchain technology is not ready for that it doesn't scale well so that's why these little things i call them micro bookmakers you know these little private networks these little dark pools where people like me go who don't want their edge busted you know i, I just don't want anyone to know what i bet no KYC, nothing like that. It's much easier to build a small little private blockchain network, the independent token um, that you might exchange for Tether or something like that um, to, get a, to get out in USD. Um, it's much easier to do that. It's much easier to set up a smart contract that is a program which governs the escrow for that. And it's easier to build trust um, in these private networks than it is in a list large scale scaling blockchain. There's no blockchain that can handle the type of volume that global betting would offer it, even a p- proportion of global betting. So I think the right strategy is to start small, build these little private dark pools, maybe network them together. Um, and then when you can't find um, a match on your your private uh, pool, you know, you're just acting as a bookmaker, basically. Um, maybe there's another person out there who has um some liquidity on the other side and you can kind of cross book and match up. It's not like it's not something that already happens like large syndicates and large movers already cross book with each other. And cuz they don't want to pay the vig, right? I mean, who what do you get from paying the vig? Absolutely nothing. Um except that you know, maybe an exception is pinnacle. So I think these little networks are the key, these micro networks. And if you kind of put them all together, what might emerge from that is an exchange, which is governed by nobody. That's the key. So it's there's no governance. Nobody owns it. There's no shares. It's just a bunch of programs that exist on this distributed uh, network of servers, which are all taking money, but all kind of, um, all kind of, Uh, I guess use this open source smart contract that you know somebody might create. You know, you might see one in the future. Somebody might create this code where everyone can just use it. Everyone can understand it and look at it and trust it. Um, And then when you put your money in escrow on a smart contract on the blockchain, you know the money is going to go where it is um, because once it's committed, that's it. Um, The only thing that can release that money is data. And if you build a good system to um, basically put the result data, the fixture data into the smart contract, the money is going to go where it should be. So everyone can get down, no stiffing, no no foul play. And the best of all, you obfuscate your edge um, because you're removing it from concentrated, centralized data sources, basically databases that bookmakers own or um, offscreen stuff. So maybe like PPH books where they have their own uh, data sets on betters you, know, you just want to remove all your data from that um, until it's respected, which I don't think will ever happen.
0: The final question for me then, Stephen, what, what does the future have in, in store for you personally outside of working to, to build this decentralized global betting market? And um, is it, it, are you just going to carry on betting and doing what you're doing and, and building the pitching machines? Is there, is there any sort of grand plans for you in the near future?
1: Yeah, I plan to return to betting this year. Um, so my bankroll has significantly increased uh, thanks to just Fancy Night going public. So that was nice. And um, I feel like now that I just really want to try betting at scale before it disappears. You know, I've recently reached a point where I can bet a significant amount per game now. And that, that kind of changes things. And I've never really explored, you know, betting more than, you know, five, $6,000 on a game. Um, so when I bet more than that, I think that's very interesting, and I want to try to to run that as far as I can um, without my edge getting busted out. But I think that's happening. So short term, I'll keep on betting, and long term, I'll keep diversifying my career into different things. So you know, I kind of work with several startups in, in the sports space, and it's kind of nice to do that, and uh, you know, just enjoy life and try different things because eventually, uh, unless there's a way to obfuscate our data. uh, It's going to be really, really hard to, you know, carry the moniker of uh, professional sports better, whatever that means. So, you know, I hope things get better and that we can learn to respect the privacy of of people's hard work into producing edges. But, you know, for for me, I think I'll uh, I'll try it one last time for the next few years and see how it goes, Um, but then move on to uh, just probably more peer programming stuff.
0: All right. Well, um, I've got to say, Stephen, it's been enlightening speaking to you. I've, I've certainly learned a lot. I'll listen back a good few times as well. Um, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it. And I, I know you're a busy man. So I do just want to say thank you very much for, for coming on and, and delving into to machine learning and, and everything else that, that we've got through. So thanks very much.
1: No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope it's useful.
0: Thank you to everyone for listening. We will try and put some some useful materials in the description of the podcast as well. Um, but Until next time, thank you for tuning in to Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle Podcast.